0: Welcome to Term Talk, a Federal Judicial Center video podcast. Each term we discuss the Supreme Court cases most important to federal judges. Joining me is Professor Laurie Levinson, Director of the Center for Ethical Advocacy at Loyola Law School, and Professor Evan Lee, Emeritus Professor of Law at UC Hastings Law School. Thank you both for joining us today. We're going to talk about the inapplicability of the First Step Act to some drug offenders in Terry versus United States and the narrow application of the term unauthorized access in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, as the court discussed in Van Buren versus United States. First, let's start with Terry versus U.S. Laurie, tell us what's happening here, please.
1: What's happening here, Jim, is really the intersection of two laws that were passed by Congress to alleviate the problem of the harsh sentences in drug crimes that have been given before, specifically crack cocaine charges. So in 2010, Congress passes the Fair Sentencing Act and that changes the guidelines. And it also alleviates the problem with these mandatory minimums, at least in provisions A and B. Then in 2018, Congress comes in and passes the First Step Act. And what that says is let's make those new sentences retroactively available. So Mr. Terry comes in and he says, I was subject to one of those sentences. I had 3.9 grams of crack cocaine and I ended up getting 15 and a half years in prison. But Jim, he didn't get that under a mandatory minimum. He got that more for a career offender that he had prior offenses, including when he was a juvenile. So the court had to take a look and see whether his sentencing was under the, quote, covered offenses, and it held unanimously that it was not. In a 9-0 decision, the court said that regardless of how harsh the sentence might be, that the First Step Act only applies to certain sentences that were changed under provisions A and B, and he was sentenced under provision C.
0: Okay. Evan, as Laurie mentioned, this was unanimous, so how did they get to 9-0, to zero, and what do you believe is the importance of the concurrence in this case?
2: Uh, they got to 9-0 to zero, uh, by engaging in a very close-cabined analysis of the text. Uh, this is a very straightforward reading of the statute. It's likely true that if you asked Congress today whether it intended to cover a case like Terry's, it would have said, yeah, sure, absolutely but the court wasn't willing to stretch the statutory language to encompass congressional intent. Justice Sotomayor filed uh, a solo concurrence. She concurred in the judgment, but not in part one of the court's opinion, which she felt didn't properly and fully describe the history of racial disparity and the mistaken assumptions that the drafters of the Fair Sentencing Act were trying to correct. She wouldn't broaden the First Step Act beyond its clear language. So in that, she was in agreement with the other eight justices. But she very specifically said, even though we, the court, can't correct this problem, Congress can and ought to. Evan, this
0: seems a straightforward case. So what is your principal takeaway here?
2: The court refuses to treat a statute as nothing more than you know, a general expression of legislative intent with the courts being counted on to fill out the statutory coverage as individual cases come in. It's Congress's job to draft carefully and to specify which cases are in, which cases are out. The court's not going to do that for them. Lori.
1: Well, I think that this case, as Evan says, is a reminder that Congress has that responsibility to be very careful in how it outlines who will get relief under these statutes. But it's also a reminder to the sentencing judges of how much impact that their sentences can have and how much we have learned about race and addiction and other factors that go into the sentencing of narcotic offenses.
0: Evan, let's look at uh, Van Buren versus United States. In this case, the court again seems unwilling to read statutory
2: language broadly. Uh, Can you get us started with this one? Sure. Uh, This case really hinges on what it means to quote-unquote exceed authorized access under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986. Van Buren properly had access to license plate numbers uh, through the law enforcement database that was accessible to him through his uh, patrol car computer. And that was part of his job. In this case, he did that. He did access a license plate number, but then he sold the information for $5,000 to what turned out to be an undercover FBI agent, which obviously that's an improper purpose accessing the database in order to sell the information. So the issue here is does accessing a computer system or parts of a computer system such as files or folders, that one does have a general authorization to access, but with an improper purpose, does that quote unquote exceed authorized access? And Justice Barrett writing for, the majority here, a six to three majority held no, such access is still authorized, even if it is for a, a conceivably improper purpose. The statute defines exceed authorized access as quote, to access a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain information that the accessor is not entitled so to obtain. End quote. Now, Van Buren was authorized to access the system. Not only that, he was authorized to access that discrete part of the system and to gather that particular kind of information. But the statute didn't require a proper purpose in order for the access to be authorized. It didn't say anything at all about the actor's purpose. And I think this is very important. The court goes on to say, it is not going to criminalize every violation of a workplace computer use policy. And here I'd like to quote from Justice Barrett's opinion. If the exceeds authorization clause criminalizes every violation of a computer use policy, then millions of law-abiding citizens are criminals. So on the government's reading of the statute, an employee who sends a personal email or reads the news using her work computer has violated the CFAA. Lori, what does the dissent say
0: in this case, and what is the importance of the decision in your view?
1: Well, Justice Thomas writing for Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito writing their dissent Look at the common law in this area. If you look at the common law, you would punish somebody who takes someone else's property and uses it beyond what they have permission. For example, Jim, you give your valet permission to drive your car, but he exceeds that permission if he takes it for a joyride. And so I think the overall message in this case is, as Evan explained, the court is going to stick strictly to the language of the statute, and it'll be up to Congress to have it broader, but what's key here is that the actual policy much, must outline when there's authorization, and it has to, if it includes it, a specific purpose, not just accessing the files.
0: Okay. Lori Evan, as always, it was a pleasure seeing you both again and talking with you about these cases today. Thank you again for joining us.